Good morning to Rivers Church. Merry Christmas. I don't know when you're allowed to start saying that, Merry Christmas, like a ton. Um, I am new to Advent. Um, so if, if you showing up here, if you're like, oh, we're in an Advent series, or, and you're like, I don't really know what that is, um, good to have you here. Um, I also am learning about Advent. I'm probably maybe three years in to a growing appreciation for um, Advent, um, mostly because I am growing in my awareness for my own need for rhythms and structure that helps me to stay with Jesus. Um, when I was younger, I was arrogant, and I thought that I, would just, I was just fine. Um, so Lent would come and go, and my mom would be like, what are we going to give up? And I'd be like, nothing. Like, I'm good. Like, I love Jesus. Or like Advent, like when I first got married to my wife who had a Presbyterian background, and she had a much richer understanding of Advent, and she was like, I'm going to do this Advent study. I was like, cool. I'm just going to read the Christmas story a bunch of times, and I'll be good. And, um, you know. I'm thankful that the Lord is rescuing me from myself. Um, but I, as I get older, I'm growing in my awareness of a real need for structure to come under and help me stay near Jesus and rhythms um, that remind me of his ways, um, his rescue, and that counter the pretty constant messaging I get from the world, which is God is dead. There is no God. So, I'm thankful for Advent. Um, a couple of the things that drew me to it initially is that um, in the early, for the church year, so like we are not necessarily like a high church liturgical format here, if that comes as a surprise to you. Um, we are more like a community church, organic, wonderful. Um, but in the church year, Advent is the beginning of the year. So, and that struck me as, for them and for, the, for, for churches around the world and for early church, all the way back to the uh, 3rd and 4th and 5th century, um, Advent was a time, just like what we do in January, um, looking ahead, preparation, taking inventory, planning, watchfulness, thoughtfulness about what's coming, readiness. Um, some of the things that we do in January, they, that, that is pushed forward a little bit. So the beginning of the church year is marked by Advent, and it is distinct from Christmas time and the, and the 10 days of Christmas, which is after Christmas. Um, and in the 4th and 5th century, the, most, the thing that grabbed me a couple years ago was that 4th and 5th century Christians viewed Advent as a training season. Um, this is how you prepare yourself to walk in the way of Jesus as you get ready for your church community to celebrate with you your baptism. So they viewed it as a training season. And I really like that. Um, I like the idea of training in my own life. Um, and so it appeals to me at this time of year to not just go like, oh, when is baby Jesus coming? Like as if it hasn't happened yet. I think that's what I used to think about Advent. It was like everybody's like waiting for baby Jesus to come. And I was like, that's so dumb. Like that already happened. And that was a complete miss on my part. And it wasn't until the, mid, the, mid, the, the Middle Ages that people even associated Advent with the first coming. 
Uh, it was always, always, always a hearkening and a remembering and, and, a, and a, a post to search myself and go, am I ready for his return? Um, and now it's blended. It has a double meaning. His first coming in a manger, his second coming in glory. So I love that. Um, the four themes, hope, last week, um, Christine, hope, this week, peace, um, next week, joy, and then on December 24th, which is the last Sunday before Christmas, is love, and we are engaging that in this series through some of the major players in the Christmas story, so a character study each week, drawing the theme of Advent through the character. So last week was Mary, this week we're going to look at Joseph, um, next week will be the Magi and the Shepherds, and then on Christmas Eve, Jesus. No surprise there. The wonder of the incarnation. Um, and uh, so I, I have really enjoyed preparing to talk about Joseph. Um, he is a rather quiet player in the Christmas story, and yet um, it is obvious um, to me in this season of my life that God was extremely intentional with who he would select, not only to be the mother of Emmanuel, the king of angel armies, prince of peace, but also the stand-in dad for Jesus. Um, I am thoughtful about that because my wife and I just completed um, some stuff with our will, with our wills, um, which is a terrible process. Um, you talk about the weirdest things. Um, but one thing that's important that you talk about, aside from like how long you want to be in a vegetated state, or um, if you have like fancy boats, like who would get the, which we don't, so that part was easy. Um, but they're like, hey, like if something ha tragic happens, like who will raise your, for us, we have three boys, seven-year-old, five-year-old, three-year-old, who's going to raise your sons? And that was so easy for me. It's an extremely short list. My brother, he would be the stand-in dad for my sons. Um, he's not perfect, um, but he is without, I mean, there wasn't even, it's like, I don't even, if it's like, and what happens to him? I'm like, the state. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Because I, my brother um, is like me. He is like me. He is cut from the same He's, he's, not, he's an apple that didn't fall from, fall from the tree. He's cut from the same cloth as me. Um, and he is the one that I would want to influence my boys if I couldn't be the one to do that. So you think about the heart of fa the Father God over in, in the incarnation of himself and the, and the decision that Joseph is going to be that man. That's a huge deal that I, that I was reckoning with as I was preparing my will and less testimony and stuff. I do want to hide some secret letters. I didn't realize you could do this. You can write letters to your family that cannot be opened until you die. And they're like, and I was thinking about writing some of those, like with, with some mirth in them, like giving away really stupid things, like my Nikes. Give my, like, never mind. This is kind of morbid, but. Um, so we're going to get into that um, this morning. Um, thank you for sharing about peace. Um, I think what Kristen shared um, is totally appropriate, um, that I want peace and Christmas time and joy even and all these other things, hope and love, to be like a candy cane. It's simple, it's pretty, it has a nice shape, and it's tasty and sweet, when in reality it's 
It's always more complicated than that. And the Christmas story is extremely complicated. Um, but it's littered with these Easter eggs um, that beckon us to wonder about the mystery of the way of God breaking in among us. And without question, if you study the Christmas story seriously, you will find it is inconceivable at every level that it was invented by an Eastern person with a messianic hope. It is inconceivable that it was invented because of how baffling it is to the Jewish, the Gentile, the Greek, the Roman mind that a king would insert himself the way that God chose to do it, which is just a marvel to me um, that it assaults all the wisdom of men but whispers to the humility and the gentleness of a kingdom um, that comes to console not dominate. So, um, we are not going to do a study of peace this morning. We are going to do a study of Joseph, and I'm going to look at a specific moment in Joseph's life where I think we can understand um, a layer of peace through his actions. Um, but um, what Kristen shared about, so the, in the, the Christmas story is littered, littered with peace. But the three major bombs of peace in the Christmas story um, are Zechariah's song, where at the end of it in Luke, he says of his son, um, in getting us ready to receive the Messiah, he will guide our feet in the way of peace. Then you have the angel's song, um, which is peace on earth and goodwill to men. And then you have Simeon's song, um, when he says, Lord, you may now dismiss me, your servant, in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in, sight of, in the sight of all peoples. So those are the three major peace bombs in the scriptures, not to mention Isaiah, where Jesus gets the title Prince of Peace. Um, and we, we could go into a study of the Greek word and the Hebrew words for peace, but I, would, I just want to take a moment. I think we actually know the definition of peace. We don't have to study um, these original languages because I think we, somebody's calling me, um, I think we know what peace is because if I say, if you say to me, um, I had a peaceful afternoon, if somebody says that to you, could, would you be willing to just name a couple words that feel like synonyms or definitions of peace. What are some words to us right now, opening the floor, for, for synonyms of peace or a definition? This is a one-word definition of what I think peace is. Go. Quiet. Quiet, absolutely. And that is in the definition of the original language. Calm. calm. Who said that? Calm. Yes, calm. Quiet. Relaxing. Relaxing. Relax. Disturbing. Nothing disturbing. Rest. Steady. Comfort. A nap. A nap. That does sound peaceful and restful. Safety. Absolutely. That was absolutely a part of the original definition. Safety of mind. Safety of body. Oneness is also, think, think gathering things back to one. Think a relationship 
that, that's been severed but that comes back and is reunited in one, and then finished. Think about when you finish something and that sense that you have, it is done and it has been done well. That is captured in that as well. This is the reality of what God was ushering in via himself in our midst. And he's doing it in an incredibly complex moment in history for his people. And he's coming in in a very quiet way. Um, I'm going to give you the Christmas story by the numbers because I think it's interesting. And then we're going to take seven minutes to do the big picture, and then we're going to zoom in on the life of Joseph. Okay? Here's the Christmas story by the numbers. Um, You have seven inspired people. Everyone in the Christmas story is filled with the Holy Spirit. It is remarkable to watch, and it was rare in their time, because they would think like, oh no, Elijah had the Holy Spirit, or King David had the Holy Spirit. These like lightning rod people who had the Holy Spirit, and all of a sudden, um, at the advent or the coming or the annunciation that a Messiah is coming, all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. People start getting lit up by the Holy Spirit. So you have seven inspired people. You have six journeys. Six journeys. You have five dreams. You have four songs, which is what has caught my attention this year. You have three angel visits. You have two pre-named babies. And pretty miraculous births, but one stands out from the other in some notable ways. You have one atrocity, and along with that, one virgin birth. That's the Christmas story by the numbers. You find the Christmas story in the beginning of Matthew and the beginning of Luke. If you want to walk with Joseph, you walk with Matthew. If you want to walk with Mary and Mary's family, you walk in Luke. If you want to see the whole story, you have to read them together. To get the whole picture, you have to read them together, because... It is a three to four year account that is condensed into, for us, oftentimes a nativity scene that that captures, um, I think, the moment well, but it's so condensed that we're missing some of what's happening between the lines there. So, seven minutes. After Malachi speaks and speaks a blessing and a promise um, that he... There is going to be a Messiah who's going to come, and the hearts of fathers will return to their children, and the hearts of children will return to their fathers, or else he's going to strike the land with a curse. That is the last words of prophecy spoken to Israel, and then there's a 400-year gap of silence while they are crushed and dominated by by regime after regime, ending with Rome. It's quiet. Hope is stifled. Peace is, is wrecked. Love, joy, all that stuff underfoot. They are like a cockroach under the foot of Rome. During that time, a rustic mountain priest is selected to serve in the temple. He is an old grandfather aged man, and so is his wife. When he's in the temple, the angel Gabriel appears to him. His name is Zechariah. His wife's name is Elizabeth. The angel Gabriel goes, Zechariah, the Lord has heard your prayers. You're going to have a son. You're going to name him John. He's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. Zechariah, how could this possibly happen since I'm an old man? Gabriel, I I came to bring you this message from God. Because you didn't believe me, you will be quiet until you see it come to pass. You will have space to ponder my words. 
comes out, Zechariah cannot speak the benediction over the people, which is a huge deal. He's trying to like sign to them, but he doesn't know sign language. And so he is, he is just an old guy who everybody's like, what just happened to you? And he's like, I wish I could tell you, but none of this means anything. And so Christmas. Um, and so um, he goes home and, and somehow communicates this with his, with his wife. And they grab some time together. And then she gets pregnant, which is a miracle because she is past the age of childbearing. She goes into seclusion for five months. She goes into a five-month seclusion. In the sixth month of her pregnancy, this same angel Gabriel shows up to another small country bumpkin town in Galilee called Nazareth, where a 14-year-old Mary, she's either... Mary is either 12 years old and one day, or 13, or 14, or 15. She is somewhere in there. That's the soonest a woman could be betrothed based on some biological stuff that they were watching for. Um, she's betrothed to be married to Joseph, who is either 16, 17, 18, but not older than 20. Um, angel shows up. Good morning. You are highly favored. What kind of greeting could this possibly be, she wonders. And the angel says to her, you are going to bring forth the anointed one, the Messiah. His name will be He Saves because he will save his people, not from Rome, but from their sins. Yeshua or Joshua or Jesus means he saves or he rescues. Be it unto me, according to your will, O Lord. I'm your servant. The angel also goes, and even Elizabeth, your cousin is pregnant, for nothing is impossible with the Lord. What? She says, and she immediately gets her stuff and goes on a trip. Her fiancé hears that his, that, his, that his fiancé went on a trip. She is gone for three months. She's gone for three months, so she meets Elizabeth in her sixth month. She's with Elizabeth till the ninth month, so most likely she is there for the birth of John. You know what happens when they greet? John leaps in the womb of... Um, Elizabeth, and Elizabeth cries out, and Mary sings this beautiful song, and it's this awesome scene, and they kind of hang out in the hill country of Judea until John the Baptist is born, and then she returns home pregnant. So from Joseph's vantage point, she went on vacation, she came back pregnant, she's got this crazy story, and he's like, golly. <laughs> um, and we're going to zoom in on that. Um, an angel, first dream to Joseph, speaks to Joseph in a dream, take Mary as your wife. He takes her pretty quickly. Um, a census is issued by Caesar Augustus. See, uh, yeah, Caesar Augustus. Um, they have to travel, they have to, travel um, to the home of their fathers. So she's now with Joseph. Joseph is of the line of David. So is she, by the way, but she's also, she can also claim kinship with the priesthood. So over Jesus, the priesthood and the line of David meet. Um, they travel to Bethlehem, which is down south near Jerusalem. They arrive. There's either no place for them in the inn or no place for them in the main room. So they are in either a spare room or a cave or a, or a, a barn or like an outhouse type situation. They're in one of those three things. All of those would be appropriate um, with our understanding. And she gives birth to a baby boy that night. Because on the hills of Bethlehem is where all of the temple sheep are kept for sacrifice. All of the sheep in Israel that are marked for sacrifice. 
have always been kept on the hills of Bethlehem. And those shepherds have a very special job. Those sheep stay out all year, and they keep watch over those sheep all year. How appropriate. And the shepherds are notified by one angel, which is a little overwhelming, and then a whole host of angels are singing at them, and it's extremely overwhelming, and then it's all quiet again, and they go search out this baby that's going to be in a St. Bernard bowl wrapped in oil rags. Swaddling cloth, lying in a manger. They find the child, they worship. Eight days later, Mary and Joseph take Jesus and he's circumcised and Joseph gives him the name Jesus, Yeshua. 33 days past that, so 41 days after the birth, they go to Jerusalem, which is six miles up. This is where they consecrate the baby and because they're extremely poor, they only offer two doves, which was the, the offering for people who were extremely poor. Simeon and Anna are waiting. And they speak words over this child in everybody's hearing. Simeon calls the baby a light for revelation for the Gentiles and for glory for the people of Israel. They marvel at these things. They travel back to Bethlehem where they make for themselves a home. Most likely because it's much nicer to live there where people don't know the scandalous background than in their hometown where everyone knows that Mary went away and came back pregnant and Joseph didn't have the spine to do anything about it because he either was involved or is a coward. So they make a home in Bethlehem. Sometime later, a caravan arrives from, of either nomadic travelers or Persian magi or Babylonian magi. They come to Jerusalem. Where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We've been watching this star, this thing happen in the heavens for about two years. We're here to honor the one who's been born king of the Jews. Herod, who is a, Herod the Great, who when he was young was an amazing general, is now a psychopath, murders his own wives, murders his own sons, murders people close to him. He is a psychopath. And he goes, where, they're like, where is this child? He calls together the Pharisees. Where is the baby going to be born? Bethlehem. You, O Bethlehem, are by no means least among the... goes on. They travel down, they find the baby, the star, you know the situation. Gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh, king, priest, death. Then they're warned in a dream. They escape by another route. Herod realizes he has been outwitted and immediately mounts a cavalry to go and murder all of the babies in Bethlehem and its vicinity who are two years old and under in accordance with when he had learned from them that they had started watching this star. Joseph is roused in the night, second dream. Get up, take the child, and flee to Egypt now. Which is like saying, hey, we are either, tonight, we are either, waking up in the middle of the night, we are either going to Castle Rock or Pueblo tonight with our toddler. Let's go, now. And they flee. Um, soldiers come through. Soldiers are young men who are told to identify toddlers, which is, I think we all know from working with young guys, the ability of a young guy to know what a toddler is, is it's impossible. <laughs> and so the murder of the innocents was devastating. Devastating. Um, and you go, peace on earth. And the Holy Family um, takes their toddler Jesus to Egypt, the border was 90 miles away, the Nile was 200 miles away, and they live there for a period of time as a refugee immigrant family. 
And most likely, they liquidate some of those gifts from the Magi to survive. Then another dream, Joseph travels back up north knowing that Herod and his son, because he murdered his own son five days before he died, are dead. And it seems like they want to go back to Bethlehem because this dream goes, you can go back. They're heading up the coast to go back. And then another dream warns him to keep going, and they make their way back to Nazareth. And Jesus is most likely three or four years old when they get back to Nazareth. That's the Christmas story. Mm. Nine minutes. Um, That's the Christmas story in its fullness. So now, let's zoom in in Matthew. Let's zoom in in Matthew. But you can feel the complicatedness. It's like it's, like it's not just peace and joy and love. and It's fl- fleeing for your life and, and crazy despos. And despo, despo, depot, despo, I think that's what you say. Um, and then in the midst of this, you have this stand-in dad who is elected to be the one to rear the prince of peace, the king of angel armies, who's 20 years old at most. Matthew Chapter 1, starting in verse 18. This is how the birth or the genesis of Jesus the anointed, the Christ, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. So she's three or four months pregnant when, when she's found to be with child. Because Joseph, her husband, was a, was a just or a righteous man, And did not want to expose her to public shame or to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. I want to zoom in right here. Um, Justice means the appropriate or the correct administration of the law. It says Joseph is a just man. He's also a young man. I work with young men. That is my job. Um, betrothal in, in the first century was the exact, it carried all of the exact same power of a marriage, but they, the marriage had not yet been consummated. So any, any infidelity at any level was adultery. Most likely, this marriage has been arranged by their parents who saw the other, each other, as um, suitable prospects for one another, and Mary gave consent. Um, she goes away on a trip. She comes back pregnant. Joseph's 19 or 20 years old. His understanding of justice was such that he chose to break the law for the sake of honoring what he believed to be the heart of the lawgiver. We're going to get into that. Because the law in Deuteronomy declared that in his circumstances, she was worthy and deserved to be stoned to death. He did not get her pregnant. He knew that. She is pregnant, and there's only one way to get pregnant up to that point in human history. And as a young man, I marvel at the fact that wounded as he was, because he was just, his lens for justice was such that he was going to break 
the law and go against the counsel of some in his hometown for the sake of protecting her. Where does he get that lens for justice? Um, I want to look at something real quick because Joseph, when the angel, which we're not there yet, but when the angel comes to him and says, Joseph, son of David, that is not what people called him. No one called him Joseph, son of David. But that is how, that is who he was. We know that David was a man after God's own heart. We know that there's a psalm that's possibly attributed to David that he goes, I am a man of peace, but when I speak, they are all for war. You go, where did Joseph, as a young man, because I work with young guys. Young guys are hot. They are hot and ready to spool up and go. Your fiance comes back. She's pregnant. Oh, you'll never believe this. God did this to me. <laughs> You're like, that's what, he, that's what he calls himself, huh? <laughs> Your lover calls himself? No. I don't want to joke about it too much, but it is, there is some craziness in there. Um, she comes back, and he is just, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? This echoes with eerie similarity to the scene in John 8. John 8. Jesus is in the temple courts. Some Pharisees come dragging a woman in who's been caught in adultery. They quote the law. Where did Jesus learn that? What was his lens for justice? If you look at Isaiah 42, and I'll go there, there are several songs or several poems or several moments in Isaiah prophetically where he is talking about the Messiah, the servant of the Lord. Here's one of them. This is Isaiah 42, starting in verse 1, but we're going to focus on verse 3. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. He's not going to clamor for your attention. A bruised reed he will not break. Think a tulip stem. You pinch a tulip stem and the tulip immediately collapses. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. This is really interesting because a bruised reed, a bent reed, when they would make baskets or boats in the Middle East out of reeds, you can work with a reed that is, that is firm, but one that's been crushed is more liable to break, and so you throw it out. But a bruised reed, he will not break, and a smoldering wick, it is out. There's still, probably still that tiny, 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 tiny ember there, but he will not snuff out. What is that? What kind of picture of justice is that? There is a gentleness and a mercy and a hope for the broken ones, the dimly, the dimly lit ones 
or the smoking embers. There is a mercy and a gentleness that abounds in the heart of God for those. Do you know what James writes in his letter? James 2, I think it's verse 13 or 14. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You know who James's brother was? Jesus. You know who James's dad was? Joseph. Joseph's lens of justice is such that he will incur with Mary before he knows, before he knows what is actually the truth. He is not willing to put her to public shame or disgrace. He is not willing to see her life thrown to the wayside because of the law. He will break the law for the sake of holding and keeping peace and honoring what he believes to be the heart of the lawgiver. That is marvelous to me. It helps me to begin to reckon with the beauty of his character that is quiet, steady, dream after dream, and he is fast in his obedience. It keeps going, as you know, and it says, but... Verse 20, after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Um, That is a good translation of the Greek word. Considered is a good translation, but there is a whole other aspect to that word, which means anger. To become angry, fuming, would be another way of thinking about it. And I think that is only human to assume that Joseph, in learning that his fiancée is pregnant, has in his consideration disappointment, anger, he, that, that he is stewing in his anger. How could you do that? As, so as he's considering it, the other translation for that word, the word behind considered is, what is this? Enthymiome. I don't even know. If, that's probably close. Enthymiome is the Greek word right there, and it carries with it um, a strong denotation of anger. Which is so helpful for me because in his anger, he did not sin. In his anger, before he knew, he did not sin. He chooses, as he's understanding as best as he can what he knows to be true about God, he reprocesses his anger into grace towards her. If that is not a beautiful picture of peace, I do not know what is. To allow the peace of Christ to dwell in your hearts so richly, as Colossians would say, that in our anger, we make space to reprocess it and be be gracious. This is when, as he's considering and stewing and and even fuming on this, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David. Right then, he realizes this is something totally different. No one calls me that. There are lots of sons of David. David had several wives. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name 
Yeshua. He saves because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. Who is Jesus? He is God with us. What does he do? He saves us from our sins. Emmanuel, Yeshua, Jesus. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded and took Mary home as his wife. He did this most likely with some immediacy because she wasn't yet showing, but people knew, and he just brings her in, which affected the rest of their lives. He had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. It was completely unnecessary for him to bring her to Bethlehem because men represented their families in all matters of government. It is most likely that Joseph brought Mary with him to Bethlehem because he was worried about what might happen to her if he left her behind in Nazareth. This is what I read. Joseph acts as a strong, thoughtful person whose bold decision at a point of crisis saves the life of the mother and her unborn child. His vision and his understanding of justice stayed his hand. He was able to reprocess his anger into grace. You fast forward back to John 8. This woman is hauled in before Jesus. Jesus was back in Nazareth soon enough that the stories and the whispers of his parents and his illegitimate conception were a part of his upbringing. Fast forward. A woman's hauled in front of him who's been caught in adultery. What do you say? Here's what the law of Moses says. We should stone her. What do you say? All eyes are on her and him. And you know what he does. It's this beautiful, mysterious moment. He takes a knee, and he starts to draw on the sand. And people are trying to... He's, he is distracting for sure. He is drawing the attention off of her to himself. It is absolutely a remez moment to a, to a passage of scripture in Jeremiah that those who forsake the ways of the Lord, their names will be written in the sand. He stands up. He's had time to gather his thoughts. Do you think he's angry? Ooh, do you think he's angry in that moment? He knows the whole deal. He knows how she is just a pawn. But he stands up. He takes space to process and reprocess his anger. And in a gracious, brilliant sentence, he levels the playing field. You who are without sin, step forward and throw the first stone. Then he stoops back down again. I love that there is a thread between these two. The old men leave first. You know who's last to leave? The young men. But Joseph, as a young man, had the wisdom to understand justice through the lens of Isaiah and other passages in Scripture that whispered about a God who was gentle beyond, beyond belief whose way of coming in peace was not to dip his blood in the, in the blood of his enemies, but his blood would, would be dipped with his own, his robe would be dipped with his own blood. 
The way God makes peace is crazy to us. By his wounds, we are healed. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Joseph models this from an early age, and it, it stirs in me a thankfulness and a wonder about this man who is quiet through the pages. He does not raise his voice in the pages of Scripture or cry out. I want to end by reading the end of Zechariah's song. Zechariah is also quiet because he was quieted. Um, he's like, how's this going to happen? I'm an old... And, angel, and Gabriel's like, wow. And Zechariah, when his son is being circumcised, motions in agreement with his wife that they are going to break from the custom and not name him Zechariah, but name him John. And his mouth is loosed. Um, Worship team, you can rejoin me at this time while I read this last piece. Um, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. This is Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 67. Listen to this. He has been stewing on what he, I mean, I think he's been stewing on what he's going to say for a minute. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said that he would do through his prophets long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before us all our days. Okay, that's what he says about. Then he goes, and you, my child. He's talking about his son, John. But listen to the invitation to this for us, to a broken world. We had a horse and carriage come to our neighborhood the other night. We're singing carols on it with my neighbors, which, by the way, I, I, sorry, I forgot to tell you guys about that. I'm sorry. I know. I'm sorry. Um, and several of our neighbors did not know any of the words um, to classic, beautiful Christmas hymns. And it just, made, it just wakes me up to like, man, I need to be aware of the invitation to welcome the dimly lit, the bruised reeds home. Instead of trying to prune them off and only look for bright candles, I need to be aware of the invitation of the gentleness and the meekness of the kingdom of heaven breaking forth in our midst and breaking the law for the sake of honoring the heart of the lawgiver, that the lost might know the prince of peace who incurs all offense on their behalf because mercy triumphs judgment and kindness is what leads us to repent or come home. And you, my child, you will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. Listen to how this is going to happen. How do we prepare the way for the Lord to come in the lives of our neighbors? Give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. You're forgiven. Oh, I get it. Before you ask, you're forgiven. Oh, I get it. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Give them the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. 
by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Lord, would it be so. Thank you, Lord, for this season and this morning and this quiet example in the life of Joseph of a man who stayed his hand in the midst of his anger and his uncertainty but chose to quiet himself and to process through the lens of scripture and your spirit grace and in so doing Lord he was fit to be the stand in dad of Jesus king of the angel armies prince of peace would you Jesus lead us in similar ways as we understand your word and are moved by your spirit to be a people who honor the heart of the lawgiver willing to break from our culture for the sake of making you and your ways known and welcoming the dimly lit and the bruised reeds home amen